Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, so there was this trend that happened about a month ago on social media, very strange, but I want to do a little survey and see where you guys stand on this whole deal, is uh, primarily women were asking the men in their lives how often they think about the Roman Empire. Did you see this trend that was going on? Yeah, very weird. So uh, ladies, go ahead and find a guy around you and ask him, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Go. And maybe explain why you do. Okay, so let's just do a little survey real quick and find out from the guys in the room. Uh, who thinks about the Roman Empire at least once a year? At least once a year. Go ahead and raise your hand. Once a year. Okay, so quite a few of you. Uh, once a month. How about once a month? Okay, yeah, I see you. Once a month. Uh, weekly? Anybody? Weekly. Where you think about it. Okay, all right. Some of you think about it weekly. Okay. Daily. Who gets up on a day? Really? You think about it on that regular? Okay. Last service, someone raised their hand and their friend said, well, it's because he was around for the Roman Empire. He was an elderly gentleman. I thought that was rude. I wouldn't repeat it. But uh, anyway, so uh, it's kind of a weird question. And there's lots of people who have opinions about why we think about it. But it's not a new phenomenon. Is We have been thinking about the Roman Empire ever since the Roman Empire. Is If you go all the way back to the first century, people were concerned about what was happening not only in the Roman Empire, but in the city of Rome. And one of those people was the Apostle Paul. Uh, nice transition there. You see how I did that? Introduce the subject. Boom. Here we go. Behind the scenes. So... Uh, the city of Rome was an important place, um, not just for the Roman Empire, but for the spread of Christianity and the church there. And Paul wanted to make his way to the city of Rome, but he never made it. So instead, he wrote them a letter. And in this letter, he has all these explanations of different theological and philosophical perspectives on Christ and what he came to do. And, and we have that letter. It's in the book of Romans. And so what we're going to be doing starting this weekend and in the coming weeks is we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. And if you're not a, a church person, you're not super familiar with the Bible and all that, let me just give you a quick cliff notes. Is you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. You might be familiar with that. Old Testament is before Jesus. New Testament is from Jesus on. And you have the first four books of the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are called the Gospels. And those talk about Jesus' life and his ministry and his death and resurrection. And then right after that, you have the book of Acts. And that's really what happens right after Jesus ascends into heaven, you see the launch of the church. And then right after Acts, you have these letters. They're called epistles, the Pauline epistles. And they're letters written by Paul to different churches that he has either planted or is, uh, is connected with. And he gives them different insights into who Jesus is and what he came to do and what this means for our life. And God really used Paul to tease out some theological significance of Jesus' life and ministry. And if you don't know who Paul is, Paul was a person who once was persecuting Christians. He, in fact, murdered them and then met Jesus. And then he became a Christ follower. And he is one of the most impactful people in all of human history. And the reason is because not only he planted churches, but because of these letters that we have to the different churches. One of the letters is Romans. And uh, Romans is written about 20 years after Jesus, around 55, 56 AD. And it is deep. Like it is deep. If you are a thinking person, which I hope all of us are, you're going to love this letter. 
And, and it might be a little bit, if it's your first time working through Romans, you're going to be like, I'm not even sure I understand half of that. And that's okay. But the, the, the kind of the subtitle for this series is Think Different, Live Different. We want to be people who live different. We want to live like Jesus. And so we're going to have to begin thinking different, thinking like, well, Jesus. And so Romans, as we work through it on the weekends, we're going to kind of zoom in onto some key verses and ideas. But during the week, we've made these study guides so that you can read through Romans, start working through some of the questions and some of the, the insights that we gain from it on the weekend. Okay, so you can pick these up in the lobby on your way out. We're just going to ask that you take one per person. Uh, and uh, if you want to, you can download it online. It's also available on our website. So today, we're going to be jumping in to... Uh, this feel far away? This feels far to me. I'm bringing it closer. Come to me. Dun, 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 dun. I'm so strong. Okay. Today we're going to be going into Romans 1, and we're going to be at Romans, we're going to go about halfway down the page to Romans 16. So if you have a Bible, it's your Bible app, you can follow along. If not, it's going to be on my TV that is now closer to me. All right, here we go. Romans 16. Here's what he says. He makes this big statement right up front. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the word gospel right here, all of us have heard of that word, but we may be a little fuzzy on how to define it. And I could do an entire series on what this is right here. What exactly is the gospel? If I were to just give you the very basic bullet points on what the gospel is, it would be something like God has come down as Jesus Christ, and he has taken our place and died on our behalf so that we could be forgiven of our sins and we could have eternal life and be reconciled with our heavenly father. That would be my basic concept of what the gospel is. Now, it's multifaceted. There's so much more to that. Like I said, we could do an entire series on just that word right here. But he says, I am not a, and then here's the word he says, I'm not ashamed of this message. Now, this implies that there are people who are ashamed of the gospel message. It's not only true then, but it's still true now. If I were to interview the people that you have regular interactions with in your life, so at people at, at work or at school, the kids' parents that your, your kids play with or your neighbors, if I were to ask them if they know you're a Christian, what percentage do you think would say, yes, I knew that? Okay, wait, no, let's go a little further than that. What percentage would say that you have talked to them about your faith? Well, that's a probably a little lower percentage there. I'm not sure I like that. Now, imagine if that percentage of how many people you share your faith with was how you treated your spouse. Like, I, I, just, I imagine this scenario is one day your spouse arrives at your place of work and they've never been before and they surprise you and you roll in and all your coworkers go, you're married? <laughs> Since when? I mean... We've been working together for years. I know your lowest score in golf. I know what you order at In-N-Out. How do I not know you're married? Your spouse would probably be a bit upset that you have not shared the fact that you're married with anybody. Now, Jesus feels the same way. In fact, he says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before your, my heavenly father. So he continues on. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Now, you may not be a person who believes in God or not even sure about this whole faith thing, but you have to admit that there is something powerful about this message. Even if there was no God, you can, you can still see that there is power in this message because it has been the thing that has transformed the world more than anything else in human history is this person named Jesus and the message that he's brought. It's changed countless lives. It has turned societies upside down. There's been entire cultures that were built upon these truth claims, including the one that you and I live in. 
That's why one of the things we say around here is that Jesus changes everything, because, well, he has, and he continues to do so. And so he says, uh, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, there's a few things I want to break down here. Um, He says, this is a message, this gospel message is for everyone. So it's not just for people who are morally upright, who do their taxes on time, who haven't run any red lights in their entire life. Who, no, no, no. This is a message for everyone. Now, who is the everyone? Everyone who believes. Well, what does it mean to believe? To believe, we, we kind of think of as maybe an intellectual ascent. There are certain things that we affirm to be true. So like there was this person, Jesus, and he really did die on a cross. And in fact, he really did rise from the dead. And, and that is a part of belief. But the word that is used here for believes is, is much more complex than that. It really means to entrust, to put your, your weight upon. It is, it's more than just an intellectual affirmation. It's more about entrusting your entire life to this person. The image that comes to my mind would be something like a, a ski lift. I grew up snowboarding, and for the most part, you don't get too freaked out being on a ski lift. I mean, maybe you're 20, 30, 40 feet off the ground, and you think, all right, Worst case scenario, if I fall off this thing, maybe a broken leg. I can survive that. But then there's some places that you go where you'll be on the ski lift, and then all of a sudden there'll be a cliff, and you're 100, 200 feet off the ground, and you go, oh, this would be really bad. Like, there is no surviving this kind of fall. And so what have you done? In that moment, you begin to think, you know, I've put my entire weight of my life, I've put everything into the trust of this cable right here. And there is no like halfway, being like halfway on a ski lift. You can't just like sort of like, I'm 50% in on this deal. No, you're either in or you're not. And that's what this belief is about, is when you follow Jesus, you say, okay, it's 100%, I'm all in. I give you authority over everything, my money, my body, my future, my eternity, not based on me, but based on what you've done for me. And it's all this underlying question, salvation. What is salvation? And, and, and I think Paul here is answering a question that most people are not even aware that, they are, that they're asking, is how can we be saved? It sounds like a religious question, how can we be saved? But I don't think it's just for religious people. I think it's for everyone. That intuitively, we know that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. Like no one gets up in the morning and goes, I'm perfect. <laughs> and the world around me is awesome. There is no problems. Everybody has it all together. No, we think the very opposite. Even if we think we have it going on, we look around the world and we go, you guys are, you guys are messed up, man. You guys are screwed. So my dad asked me, um, it was my birthday this last week, and and, uh, my dad asked me, he said, what's, he said, this was rude how he actually asked the question. He said, now that you're middle age, and I said, oh, excuse me, (laughs) that means you're two-thirds age, so relax. Um, He said, what's been your learning so far? I said, you know, this is going to sound kind of bad, but my learning is how messy people are. I think I was really optimistic about humanity, and I just was sort of blind to how just jacked up we all are. And that that is true. I think we look at the world and we go, man, we are are messed up. And so intuitively, we're all asking, what's going to save me from myself, from the world around me? I read an article this last week about a 45-year-old CEO made billions of dollars, And now he is spending millions a year trying to stay young. And so he has medicine and exercise, and he meets with all these experts and specialists, and and he's just, he's combating the inevitable. He's looking for something or someone to save him because he knows he's deteriorating. He knows that this 
world is not going to satisfy him. And eventually it's going to end. And so is there anyone or anything that can save me? And I think that's a question that all of us are asking. All of us are getting up and we're finding someone or something that we think is going to save us. That's going to bring us away from this fear and this anxiety and this depression that something's going to make things better. And Paul says, yeah, none of it's going to work. You're right, you do need saving. But all the things you think you need saving from are just symptoms of what the real issue is. As your body falls apart, as your relationships break, as you're continually disappointed, you do need saving. But those are symptoms of the thing you need saving from, which is sin. You need saving from sin. That's why the world is the way that it is. He continues on, he says this, he says, um, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. See, what he's saying here is he's saying that this is going to be something that is going to be for everybody or all time. This is what the humanity's problem has been and continues to be, and there's only going to be one way that it can be addressed through this gospel message. Verse 18. Uh, 18 says, the wrath of God, oof, this is going to get weird. Okay, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, this is the part, if you're not a church person, or even if you are, you go... Yeah, I don't really like this part. Because now we're talking about not only is God love, we talk about that, but God is a God of wrath. Like he pours out his wrath on humanity. And you might be a person that goes, well, I don't believe in a God like that. I only believe in a God of love. Okay. I think you're right. I do think God is a God of love. The scripture affirms it over and over again. But I would ask you, why do you believe God is a God of love? Like where did you get the idea that God is love? I can tell you where you didn't get it from. You didn't get it from nature. You didn't look at nature and go, you know, I think that this God must really love us. There's a Instagram page. It's got like 5 million followers on it. And it's called Nature is Metal. Life eats life. And it's just these pictures and videos of animals being savage to one another. I remember being on safari years ago. And I won't tell you the graphic details, but I will tell you the end result is a baboon catching a baby monkey and literally ripping it in half with its own hands. And I just went, that's metal right there. <laughs> that is, whoa. And so you don't look at nature and you don't even look at humanity and go, there's a lot of love out there. A lot of love. No. Okay, what about other religions? Is it something that's just natural for us to believe in? No, that's not true either. Go and study all the world religions and you'll see and you know, paganism or Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, none of those religions believe that God is love, that he is the foundation of love. And so where did it come from? When people reject the God of the scriptures for a God of love, they're actually doing something kind of strange. Is they're saying, I believe in a God of love, which can only come from the scriptures. That's why you believe in it but I reject it in form for another God of love that I've made up? No, the only reason you believe in it because that's what the scriptures say, is that God is love. And so when we believe in a God of love, we also have to believe in a God of wrath because this is two sides of the same coin. Love is what God is for. Wrath is what God is against. And moms, I think moms are probably the best example of this as you know this to be true. Because there is no more fierce love than a mother has for their child. But as soon as someone threatens that child, that love will be manifest itself into wrath on whoever is trying to mess with their kid. I saw a video, like a ring camera that was 
Well, it was this little girl. She was five years old, and she was coming out on her patio, and she was getting ready to get on the school bus. And out of nowhere, like the bushes, this raccoon attacks her and starts biting her ankles. And she's screaming, and her mom runs out without hesitation, grabs this thing, shakes it, and throws it across the yard. And I was like, that's right. That's mama's love right there. That's turned into wrath if you mess with her kids. See, see they're not opposites. They go together. Is, is love is for, wrath is what you are against, but you can't have just one. We also talked about the fact that Jesus came in order to save us, but that begs the question, what is, God, what is Jesus saving us from? Saving us from having a bad day? No, no, no. Jesus is saving us from God's wrath because of our sin. See, we want God to punish sin. I think intuitively we all do. At first glance, you might be like, I don't know if I like a God that punishes But if there is any justice in the end, God is going to have to be a God that punishes, that pours out his wrath. And I think this is a good thing. In fact, I think this is something that all of us intuitively want. That if we found out that God does not exist, or at least the God of the scriptures, and there is no justice in the end, it would really sour life for us. Like Hitler goes and kills six million Jews, starts a world war, millions die, and then he gets away with it in the end. That doesn't seem fair. There's something we intuitively know that there must be justice. It's, it's how we continue to live life because there are times in which we will experience no justice in this life. And so we put our hope that there's justice in the end. The problem is, is not that we don't want there to be justice in the end. We all want it. We just want it for somebody else, not ourselves. We want God to be just and to punish those who have done wrong. But we want the line to be just on the other side of where we're at for all those people over there. But that's not how God works. God is perfect. And he means he's perfectly just. And so he will punish all injustices, including the ones that we have done ourselves. Verse 24, Paul explains what this wrath starts to look like. He says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So one of the ways that God pours out his wrath upon us, and we think about wrath as being this fire from the sky like Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're turning into a pillar of salt, and it's very dramatic. But I don't think that's what God's wrath looks like, at least not right now. I think what it looks like is God allows us to pursue the desires that we have and doesn't stop us from getting what we deserve. Like, There are things that we desire, and God knows that they're bad for us, and so he will keep us from those things. But eventually, as we continue to push and we continue to pursue those things, eventually God goes, okay, have it your way. Go for it. See how this ends up? Because in creation, there seems to be these punishments that are embedded into misuse of God's gifts. Like, for example, if I were to cheat on my spouse, there's consequences, And it doesn't have to be God raining fire down from the sky. God doesn't have to do anything because I will experience punishment from my wife, from my parents, from all of my friends, probably from you as well. There will be punishment by that very act of misusing God's gifts. It's as if God's discipline is woven into creation when we misuse his good gifts. Continues and he says this in uh, the next verse, verse uh, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godless, godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, this is really important. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, if you're a person who considers themselves maybe an agnostic, an atheist, or not really sure, 
this is going to offend you. I'm just going to tell you right up front, this part's going to be offensive to you. But Paul is making a claim. And the claim that Paul is making is that everyone intuitively knows that God is real. And you might be like, no, I don't believe, or I'm not sure of that. Okay, just hear his argument for a moment. If you go back to the Reformation, one of the fathers of the Reformation, John Calvin, he said that God has given us these different senses. Not just the five senses that we're aware of, but also this sense of the divine, that intuitively we know and we can sense that God is real. One of my favorite philosophers, Alvin Plantinga, he elaborated on this and he came up with what he calls properly basic beliefs. And he says that we believe things not based on argumentation or prior beliefs, but simply because we believe them, because intuitively we know that they're true. So, for example, I'm standing here on this stage and I'm speaking to you. The way that I know that to be true is not because someone made an argument or gave me evidence that it's true. I just intuitively know it. It's a properly basic belief. He says, believing in God for most of humanity is just like that. They don't need evidence. They don't need argumentation. They just look out into the world and they go, there must be a God. And most of humanity has believed in God and come to believe in God because of that. Now, in a moment, Paul is actually going to give us some arguments of why we should believe in God's existence. But before we get there, we need to focus in on this part. The reason why we don't believe in God, or at least the God of the scriptures. He says it's because we suppress the truth with our wickedness. One of my kids that I probably tell the most stories about is my youngest, Chad. He's six, and he is the one that is growing me closer to Jesus by the day. (laughs) And on a regular basis... um, I'm, I'm challenged by him and some of the things that he does. And so this last week was no different. I was looking for him because it was really quiet in the house. And whenever it's quiet in the house, I know Jed's probably doing something he shouldn't be doing. And so I start looking for him. I go, Jed, where you at, bud? Jed, where you at? And immediately he opens up the door and he stands in the doorway of the playroom. And he goes, I'm right here, Dad. That's not a red flag. I'm right here, Dad. Go, oh, buddy, what's up, man? What's going on? He said, nothing, nothing, just playing, just, just hanging out, just playing. Oh, okay, well, what are you doing in there? What, what, what you up to? And I see in the corner that he has his brother's Nintendo Switch, which he's not allowed to play with, nor is he allowed to play with it during the week. And so I ask him, I say, hey, it looks like you've got the Nintendo out. You're not playing with that, are you? He goes, no, 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 uh-uh, no, not me. I go, weird, huh? Well, it's on Minecraft, which is like one of your favorite games right now. Is that... Oh, I saw Ezra playing with it earlier. Ezra, Ezra had it on, and I go, hmm, bummer. Ezra's not even here right now. He's been gone all day. He's at a friend's house. He goes, oh, uh, I meant it's been on since this last weekend. He just keeps doubling down. He won't just admit what is obvious to me and everybody else. is like, dude, we can see what's happening here. Paul says the same thing about us and God. It's like, it's obvious. We see what's happening, and then you continue to double down and go, oh, I don't see anything. No, uh-uh, not me. I'm not sure if that God exists, or the God of the Scripture, that, that God definitely doesn't exist. We just continue to suppress what is obvious. The reason why we do this is because if this God really does exist, it threatens the thing that we want most in this life, control. We want to be autonomous. We want to be the rulers and authorities of our own life. And so if there is a God like this, this means that we're going to have to bow down and worship and submit to this God. And so we will do anything we can in order to suppress that possibility that God exists, or at least the God of the scriptures. 
Someone, uh, a friend of mine told me a story that they invited someone to church, and they had come to church for a couple weekends and then decided they weren't going to come back. And so the, the friend asked them, hey, uh, why aren't you coming back? And I've actually heard this story a few times from different people. Um, he said, well, you know, this last sermon, I, I just really didn't like it. So I assumed Doyle was speaking that weekend, obviously. <laughs> and um, he said, I just walked out feeling real bad about myself. So I think I'm going to come back. My friend's response was actually really good. He said, that's called conviction, and God's trying to tell you something. But do you see that? Our natural inclination is, I'm going to suppress it. I don't want to hear that. I want to deal with that. That's going to make me feel a certain way that I don't want to feel, and so we push it down. There's a uh, famous, famous atheist and philosopher at NYU, Thomas Nagel, and I love what he says about his own belief system, because he admits he's not neutral, that he does not want there to be God. Here's what he says. He says, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my unbelief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. At least he's willing to admit I don't want God. And so any evidence that there might be, it makes me uneasy, and so I push it away from me. And you might be thinking, look, Cody, I'm not an atheist. I'm not an agnostic. I believe in God. That's not the point. The point is not that you believe in God or a God. The point is, do you believe in this God? And the God is revealed throughout the scriptures and seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, all of us suppress the knowledge of that God because of what it will cost us. The average American, if you were to ask what God is like, they would say something like, well, God is loving and he just wants me to have fun and be happy and live a good life and be a good person, whatever that means. And then one day I'll get to go to heaven when I die. That God doesn't exist. That God is not real. And so you don't believe in the true God See, if you believe in a version of God that always agrees with you, never convicts you or confronts you with your life, you don't believe in God, you believe in yourself. And so he's talking to all of us, all of us who deny the reality of who God is and his goodness and his holiness and what he wants for us in our lives and the fact that we don't want to give him control. And it's all around us. We live in a culture that continues to suppress the truth. Is if you look around, we have set up entire systems where we say, okay, you can have your private beliefs, that's fine, but don't share them with anybody. Don't come to work and tell us about Jesus. Don't go to school and try to pray. Don't you dare try to tell me how to live. This is my life. In fact, what you need to do is you need to go with the flow, trust the experts, we've got it all under control. Don't think about it. We suppress the truth. And we're surrounded by a culture that suppresses the truth. Verse 19. Since this is, if you're a person who loves philosophy and likes theology and science, Paul is with you because here's what he says. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Now, here's what he's saying. And theologians now call this natural theology is that we can know certain things about God, not only his existence, but his purposes for our lives and for the world by simply looking at nature. And I divide this into two categories, um, creation and conscience. Is by looking at creation, we can know certain things about God, his character and his qualities. We can know that this God is powerful, that this God is wise, 
that's creative. There's a series of arguments, and if you know my story, um, for over 10 years, I've spent looking at the arguments for and against God's existence and Jesus' resurrection. I'm a deeply skeptical person. You might have noticed I'm a little bit cynical sometimes, and I find faith difficult. And so I spent years, I got a master's degree in theology, I've studied philosophy, I have watched every debate, I have read every book on these, because I needed to know if my faith was something that was reasonable or not, that if I could really believe in it. And Paul says, if you look out into creation, you're going to know that God exists, and you can even know what this God is like. So there's different arguments, um, some categories like cosmological arguments, and those are really about like, where did the universe come from? Because science tells us that about 13.7 billion years ago, the universe came into existence at the Big Bang. Prior to that, there was no time, no space, no material. And so everything came from nothing in a moment's time. Now that begs the question, how do you get everything from nothing? What has the power to be able to do that? Well, through a series of arguments, you get to only one thing can, an immaterial mind. And so there's been different arguments, there's, this, you know, there's different ways to formulate this, and, and, you know, people might push back and say, well, okay, hold on, I'm not ready to admit that yet. Maybe, maybe there was something before creation. Maybe it was this thing called the multiverse, where there's infinite amount of universes, and we just happen to be one of the infinite amount, but that doesn't really solve the problem. It just pushes it back a step, because then you just ask, well, where did the multiverse come from? Okay, and if there is a multiverse, there's a lot of consequences that go along with it, and you still don't solve the problem, because it's kind of like dominoes. You have all these dominoes, you can keep pushing the question back, 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 but eventually you have to get to an ending point, where you have an uncaused cause. What is that? And there's other arguments, like uh, teleological arguments, and those are about looking at creation and seeing incredible design and complexity within it. You see this from the large scale when you look at the universe. There's all these different constants and, and quantities. And so like if you take just one, like the law of gravity, if you were to modify the law of gravity just by a hair and make it a little bit lighter, we would have no galaxies and stars and no Earth. If you made it just a little bit heavier, everything would have imploded right after the Big Bang. And again, we don't exist. You look at where the earth is situated in our galaxy, and you see that we're in this thing called the Goldilocks zone, in which we have the perfect distance from our sun, where we're not too hot or too cold, and we have these other planets that protect us from asteroids. I mean, it's just evidence after evidence after evidence. Everything from the size and, and the complexity of the universe to the complexity of the cell, to the emergence of life, to the consciousness that we have, all of these are signposts. They're all pointing to God. But I think one of the most powerful ones, and Paul talks about this, is not out there, but it's in here. It's what takes place in the human heart. Like, you ever traveled, and it doesn't matter where you go, and it doesn't even matter the time that you've been, you can look throughout history, that each civilization has had the same core moral values and standards. Like, there are things that we intuitively know to be true about how we should live. Like, there are things that, there's never been a civilization that says, you know what, I think it's really good to torture children for fun. No. In fact, there's been a, a, there's a professor at Oxford, and he did a study, and he found there's these seven core beliefs that all human civilization has always had, one of which would be something like, it's good to take care of your family and to, to take care of your kids. Where does this come from? How do we know this? 
how do we have these? And, and Paul actually answers this in the next chapter. He says, it's because God wrote these things on our heart. It's embedded in our, our conscience that this is what is right and this is what is wrong. There's an actor, Stephen Fry. He's also a comedian, but he's um, a well-known atheist. And I saw an interview recently, and they asked him what he would say if he died and was confronted by God. Here's his response. How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there's so much misery and it's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. And then he finished with, I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. That's really interesting to me because what he is doing is he's living in this this in-between space where on one hand he wants to admit that there is this moral law, that there is a way that the world should be and shouldn't be, and he is pointing out all the ways that the world is not the way that it should be. But then you've got to ask, well, how do you know how the world should be? By what standard do you judge all of these things you're angry about? And he could say, well, you know, it's a consequence of evolution. This was advantageous for us in our survival so that we have these beliefs. But the problem is, is that means if you rewound evolution, we could have believed an entirely different set of principles. We could have been like the animal kingdom in which we think it's really good to eat our competitors' children. Or in the future, we could decide something else is advantageous for our survival. So that doesn't seem like a very good standard. Or maybe he got this idea from how he believes the world should be. But again, that's just about him. That's his personal preference. That's his opinion. That's not morality. Philosophers have talked about this over and over and over again. And there's only one way that you can have this transcendent moral law that all of us know to be true. It's not biology. It's not personal preference. not even cultural norms. There must be a transcendent lawgiver who gives and upholds these standards. And so he's stuck. On one hand, he wants these standards to be true. And he's angry that the world is not that way. But on the other, he has no reason to believe that they are. So Paul ends this and he says, we're without excuse. Not just to believe in some concept of God and that there is a God out there. But he says, we are with no excuse, not just to believe in God, but to know that we have broken his moral law. That he has written these standards on our heart and every single one of us, whether you believe in God or not, intuitively knows you're not who you're supposed to be. Now we say a little bit more gentle. We say, well, I'm not perfect, you know. No, I know. We all know. You and everybody else is not perfect because we know who we should be and we're not that person. Famous, another famous atheist of the last century, Bertrand Russell, was asked this very same question. If he were to die and meet God and he would tell God there was not enough evidence, there's not enough evidence to believe in you. Now, the irony of this is his daughter ends up becoming a strong Christian and writing Christian books. And so I think God's response would be, well, your daughter thought there was enough evidence. Paul thought there was, and then the billions of other people thought there was enough evidence. So I don't think that's going to be a good excuse. Is you knew, like everybody knows. And I think this is how most people come to faith. I love the argumentation. I love the philosophy. I love the theology. I love studying all these things. But at the end of the day, it's usually God's conviction in your conscience that you come to him. The arguments, they can clear the intellectual barriers out of the way. But there will be a day, hopefully, that you wake up and God goes, you're not who you're supposed to be. And you go, you're right. 
I am not. And there's nothing I can do to fix this. Someone's got to save me. It's only then that you're willing to see what Paul is talking about here. All right, let me hurry and end this at, uh, real quick. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So when we suppress the knowledge of God, what we end up doing is what Tim Collar calls cosmic plagiarism. See, plagiarism is, I take credit for something you did. And what humanity does is we begin to take credit for things that God did. And we think it's us. Oh, I, I'm the one who built this career. I'm the one who made it. I'm the one who had... No, you didn't do any of that. You, you, you didn't even provide the very breath in your lungs to be able to get up today. And yet this is what we do, is we want to tell God, I did it, not you. Continues on, says this. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So what happens is as we reject and suppress God, the source of all wisdom and knowledge, we become more foolish as we walk away from it. And it's not just a silly foolishness, it's a dark and devious foolishness. I think we can all look at the world and see that as our culture gets further and further away from God, we're not doing better. We're not getting more knowledgeable. In fact, we're making some really silly decisions. Things that all of humanity have known are now in question in the most advanced civilization in human history. And I've used this before, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but I do think it's a great representation of where we're at, is at the, um, at the, the interview for the next Supreme Court justice, as she was being questioned, she was asked a very simple question that all of humanity has been able to answer. What is a woman? And she says, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. And to me, that is a great indicator of where we're at. As we reject God, where does it end? Does it end in enlightenment and joy? It ends in foolishness. We can't even answer the most simple questions that children have been able to answer. And so let me end with verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. So the end of the day, and we've said it over and over again, everybody's going to worship. The question is not if you worship, it's what you will worship. And if you do not worship the creator, you're going to worship the created. And when you worship the created, that turns into what's called, the Bible calls an idol. And so you have two choices. Do I worship the creator or the created? Idolatry is something that the human heart does naturally when it rejects God. It will bow down to someone or something. I remember when I was 16, I got to go uh, to India with my father, and we went and we visited just these very unique and beautiful places, and we got to have conversations with people of other faiths, and, and one of the places that sticks out the most in my mind was being at a Buddhist temple, and we went to tons of them, but there was something about this one. There was a giant statue of Buddha, and then behind it in some rooms, there was people singing, chanting, playing these instruments, and so we went down the hallway to find out who they were and what they were doing, and there was something that just overcame me, and it was just this darkness. And I still can't explain it to this day. I was freaked out. And in the corner, while they were doing these chants, there was a few men, and they were making idols. I thought, that's a great illustration of the human heart. We can't help it but make idols. And you might think, well, I don't have, I don't have idols like that. I don't have statues. No, no, you're missing the point. Anything can be an idol. Any and everything can fight for that top spot in your life. The one that God is only supposed to have, you can put anything there. And if you do, that's what idolatry is. 
The human heart can't help but make things to worship. And so this is, the, this is the questions I want to leave you with. Two questions. What have you put your faith in, and does it have the power to save? What have you put your faith in, and does it— So even if you're not a Christian, you're not sure about any of this kind of stuff, I think this is a valuable question for you. You don't even have to make a decision about Jesus yet. Just ask this question. What have you put your faith in, and does it have the power to save? Like, what's the best case scenario at the end of your life look like? You make some money. You experience some moments of pleasure that are fleeting. That people admire you and think you're successful. Is that it? Is that have the power to save you? Is that going to make your life worth living? Is that going to fulfill you? Is that going to bring you value? I'm just asking. What's the best case scenario? For those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, we have to continue to fight for this temptation to put something before him. Because there's always something that wants to fight for first place in your life. And you have to get up on a daily basis and say, no, that place is for God and for God alone. And these may be good things, but I cannot allow them to be God things. And so you may need to identify what is it the thing that I am most likely to put as first place in my life. Tim Keller has a great test. He says, look at your dreams and look at your nightmares. Look at your dreams, meaning look at the thing that you believe, if you have or you can keep, will make your life worth living. And look at your nightmares, the thing that if you lose, you will lose the will to live because that's probably the thing that fights for the top spot in your life. And you'll have to continue to demote it to where it's supposed to be. So I've shared this before many times is the thing that fights for the top spot in my life is my wife and my kids. I, I know it not to be true, but I am tempted to believe that if they are okay, that my life is worth living and I can put all of my hope and joy in them. And so I have to continue on a daily basis to go, God, and this is really hard. I put my hands out and I imagine that I'm handing over my spouse and my kids to God saying, they are yours. Do with them what you want. I want to be a good steward of these relationships, but I don't want to make them the ultimate point of my life. And that's scary. For some of you, it could be your job. You find all of your value and worth in what you do. And so you're going to have to go and you're going to go, okay, I've got to demote this thing to its proper place in my life. And so that might mean I need to work less hours. I need to pass up a promotion. I got to make less money. I might even need to quit my job because it is so threatening to be that top spot in my life. For others, it's money. Money makes you feel like you're secure in this uncontrollable world. And so you are holding on to that money and it has become an idol. So you know what you need to do? Give it away. All of it. Just say, God, I trust you. I know you're going to provide for me. I know that you're in control and to prove it that you are the most important, I'm done with it. It's gone. Because that's, that's what it takes in order to prioritize God and put him first. And so the question for all of us, believers, non-believers, wherever you're at in your faith journey is, what have you put your faith in and does it have the power to save? Let's pray. Lord, you have not left us um, alone, wondering with questions about who you are and if you're even there. There are lots of moments in which I, I do ask those questions, and I do struggle, and I do doubt, and yet you have, you have given us plenty of reasons to believe, not only through your creation, but through the revelation of your, uh, through the scriptures and through your son. And so, Lord God, we are without excuse but that brings an incredible amount of hope because you are the only one that has the power to save. And so, Lord, we just pray 
today that we would continue to put you as the first place in our life and that we would need to demote even those good things, those good gifts that you have given us to their proper place so that we can continue to worship and love you first. Lord, we thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.